want to listen to this Ivory Tower Boiler Room episode and all of our Ivory Tower Boiler Room episodes ad-free, head to our Patreon, patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room for $5 a month. You get all of our ad-free episodes, our video interviews, and our bonus episodes. See you there. With a musical like Hairspray, I always think of the Broadway musical secret, you know, hidden secret is that it's subversive. You don't what you never walk out thinking about the themes directly or feeling or if you do, you don't feel like you've been hit over the head with them or that they're trying to teach you a moral or that has any of the negative aspects of that. They have just made these themes so dramatic and so important that you absorb them. Hi, this is Andrew. So as some of you might know, I've been such a fan of the Gay and Lesbian Review bi-monthly magazine of history, culture, and politics that publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies, and a number of special features, such as artist profiles and the popular art memo column, did you know we actually had two of the writers on the Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast, Ignacio Darnad and Vernon Rosario? So if you haven't, make sure you listen to those episodes. Each GNLR issue brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme and brings together the leading minds on the topic. You won't find a lot about the latest dating fads or fashion trends, Though, you might find articles about online dating as a social phenomenon, like Grindr, which I have some experience with, or the gay influence on 20th century fashion. Now, for a special offer. When you subscribe to the GNLR, you'll receive a free copy with any print or digital subscription. That's seven instead of six. Visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W dot org. Click subscribe and enter promo code ITBR for your free issue. And as an added bonus, you'll receive online access to all archived issues of the magazine. Enjoy your reading. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I'm really excited for this guest. I'm continuing our Broadway musical conversations, which happen here once in a while. Uh, we've had Dr. Stacy Wolf on from Princeton with the Broadway musical. Listen to that. That was in the summer. Jesse Green's been on twice. Um, Eric Champney dissected Carrie the musical. Um, and I'm sure, oh, I've had actors on. Uh, so, yeah, lots going on. Oh, Michael Kushner just came out right before David Armstrong. So listen to that. So, yeah, David Armstrong. I just oh, no, I spoiled the surprise. But <laughs> let me introduce who David is to all of you first. Uh, to me, he is the enigmatic host of Broadway Nation, one of my favorite Broadway podcasts and theater history podcasts. And he can get into that. Um because it is a very different setup of a type of podcast um, of laying out the full history of the Broadway musical. But he is 
Also a teacher at the University of Washington School of Drama on the history of the Broadway musical. He has had 40 years plus, I don't want to date him, but 40 plus years in the professional theater world. He's been a director, a writer, a producer, a choreographer on Broadway. Uh, he is best known for um, being the artistic director and executive producer from 2000 to 2018 at the Fifth Avenue Theater in Seattle. And he uh, produced 19 new musicals there, including what I can't wait to talk to him about, Hairspray in Memphis, which actually then transferred to Broadway. So uh, I'm assuming you are now Zooming from the state of Washington. Is that I true? I am indeed. I am okay. indeed. And enigmatically, apparently. Enigmatic. You are. It's an enigmatic <laughs> presence. Well, I'm here on Long Island, so I have that New York spirit going. Uh, so, you know, right away, thanks for joining, David. Um, Happy to be here. And I know that we have a network in common. Jesse, Stacy. I think you know Michael Kushner. Um, Absolutely. Okay. So what I'm just curious about is let's begin with David's earlier... I mean, now you have had all that experience behind you of being an artistic director, a producer, a uh, choreographer. Um, but did you start in Seattle? Like, were you born in Washington or were you on the Northeast? Like, where does your Broadway no, uh, I, I was, journey begin? I was born in Cincinnati and raised in Cincinnati. And I was one of those weird kids that, knew from the very beginning exactly what I wanted to do. I would organize the neighborhood at the you know age of nine and 10. I would organize the neighborhood to put on shows that I would produce and write and direct and star in before I knew what any of that meant, except for starring in them, of course. And uh, I often say I've been doing for the last, you know, 40 plus years, exactly what I did when I was nine years old. I just have, I make shows. I've made, I've made theater. Well, I used to do the same thing when I was young. I would actually create scripts of adaptations of Willy Wonka or, um, I don't think I did Stephen King, but I had my whole Stephen King middle school um, <laughs> praise. And then eventually I found the Carrie musical when I was in end of middle school. It was being illegally uh, shared. And right. I love that experience though, that creative um, memories that you store. I used to dance on the coffee table. I always mm -hmm. say if I had a memoir, I would call it dancing on the coffee table. Um, but I would dance to uh, take back your Ming from Guys and Dolls <laughs> in a, my mom's nightgown and high heels. And I think I was three, um, but that was my first musical I've ever, I ever saw. It was my Aunt Alice. Shout out to her. She listens. Uh, she was a high school theater director, and that was one of her uh, productions. So I still can, though, remember attending all of the musicals she put on. Like, do you remember for you? Was it a musical? Was it a play? It was, I certainly remember because, and I think everybody remembers those experiences because they're physically in your body. They're not just in your mind. They're, it's a physical experience, which is why those memories last a lifetime, literally. For me, probably initially it was from television and this was back in the 60s. 
So watching all the movies that were on TV, all the movies that were about Broadway, all the variety shows. So that was probably my first, uh, you know, interest in in Broadway, which I, you know, you heard about a lot. And then the legend is, and apparently it's at least partially true, that when I was about six or seven, maybe five or six, my mother took myself and with with her friend and, and the friend's daughter, who was around the same age, we were supposed to go to the movies to see Dumbo, the Disney you know, animated movie, and they went to the wrong theater and we saw Gypsy instead. And Gypsy, I became obsessed with Gypsy from that moment, had to have the cast album, had to dance on the table to all the, on the coffee table to all of the numbers from Gypsy as well. And uh, the in some ways the rest is history because it just, from then on, I was hooked. And, um, you know, when you're a kid, when you're that age, Gypsy's a show about, uh, is a story about kids in show business. So that's what you focus on. I'm sure that the last half hour of it was much less interesting to me when I was that age than it became much later. But I often think I certainly had taste right from the beginning. I knew what I knew what was good. And because I think still think that's one of the greatest uh, musicals of all time. And then I started going like you to high school shows. I think probably the first things I saw were high school shows. The first professional production that I know I went to which is also emblazoned in my head, was the national tour of You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, which was a big hit off-Broadway and such a big hit off-Broadway that they took it on a national tour like it was a Broadway show. And just very recently, I was Googling and saw who the cast of that was. And it was Andrea Martin played Lucy in that in that cast. Oh, wow. So, so, yeah, what an which, experience. Yeah. Wow. So so then I was obsessed with that cast album. Cast albums were a big part of it as well uh, for me. And uh and sounds very similar to you. I then not too long after that organized uh wrote and uh produced and directed a, a show using the auditorium at the grade school where I went to. I don't remember. I'm very vague on the logistics of how all this happened, but it was called Snoopy the All-American Dog, and I was Snoopy, and we basically ripped off your good man, Charlie Brown, without paying any royalties. Well, I hope that uh, whoever owns the uh, Charlie Brown estate isn't listening, but... Uh, <laughs> Well, I think they've done okay yeah. without whatever the royalties would have yeah, been. I think they're fine. Uh, <laughs> so what's so curious to me is, especially because you were raised in Cincinnati, like you're saying, there was touring productions. Um, Cincinnati's actually a big arts town. Uh, and it actually relates to some of the things I talk about in my class and on the podcast. It all has to do uh, so much of the entertainment industry in the United States as about immigration. Where did the immigrants come from and where did they settle? And for, you know, the first the the first waves of people who came to the United States were mostly what we call wasps. They were white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, and they were really Puritans initially. And that Puritan ethic, whatever you want to call it, that's a bad word for it, but that mindset, let's say that, really permeated America until these huge waves of German immigration came, the early ones in the early 1800s. And they brought 
art and fun to America. They brought music and beer gardens and all this, and they settled in New York City a lot, but then they also spread out to all those Midwestern cities like Cincinnati and Milwaukee and uh, Minneapolis and uh, all, all across the Midwest. They had these huge German populations and that's where the arts came from. That's where and the, one of the oldest symphony, I think perhaps the oldest symphony orchestra in the country is in Cincinnati. And um, oh, wow. so that's, that. be yeah, they were in some ways ahead of New York back in those, in the, in the, in the 1800s. Well, and that's why I love that in Broadway Nation, your podcast and show that it's all really centered on the immigrants, the Jewish community, LGBTQ community and African-Americans. And like you call them the outcasts who invent the Broadway musical. But I think that that's such an important um, moment for conversation, which is why for you, um, I'm assuming this is how you structure your college course too. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Why do you think that the story of the marginalized who shaped Broadway is so key to understanding its evolution? <laughs> Hi, this is Andrew. So, you know, when I'm not here in the Ivory Tower boiler room, sometimes I'm actually invited to be on other podcasts as a guest. Well, there is one podcast run by Christian Garcia and um, his co-host, Nate, that I absolutely love. It is called That Old Gay Classic Cinema. So calling all you classic cinema fans out there and those who love Queer theme cinema, which I think there's a lot of you who are listening right now where you've uh, perked up. So follow them on Instagram at that OL gay classic cinema. The first ever episode I was featured as a guest. It's the sound of music. I got to talk about being Captain Von Trapp in high school. And it's just such an exciting conversation. They've also featured discussions about Gone with the Wind, The Wizard of Oz, which features guests from uh, the podcast, The Garland Gab and Down the Yellow Brick Pod. There is a deep dive of Cinderella. And recently they had an episode on the film Giant starring Elizabeth Taylor, Rock Hudson, and James Dean. And actually, one of the uh, guests, Lauren Randall, I know from Stony Brook University's PhD English department. So shout out, Lauren. Um, you can listen to That Old Gay Classic Cinema on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. It's definitely such a great listen. So why not listen to it after you listen to this current episode on the Ivory Tower Boiler Room? First of all, I think it's a story that people kind of know, but don't really understand fully how pervasive it is. The subtitle for the podcast and very similarly for my course at the University of Washington is uh, how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical. And when I, after I stepped down from my position at the Fifth Avenue, I was approached by the University of Washington to teach if I wanted to teach a course on the history of Broadway. And I said, yes, of course I did. And but let me think about what the focus of that would be. 
And I already had this in mind that this would probably be the focus, but then I had to do the research and really sort of figure out how, how back all that up, I guess, with, uh, you know, with, with facts and statistics. And one of the ways I did that is I created, and you, with some help from other people, I created a list of the 350 it ended up growing. We started with started with about 200. It's grown to 350 because we keep adding people to it of the most significant players, basically, in the history of the Broadway musical from 1900 to today. And these are people who you could clearly demonstrate had a significant influence, a significant participation in Broadway, the creation of it and the sustaining of it. And of that 350, about 31 of them fall, are not in one of those categories. I just said the 31 of them are white Anglo-Saxon Protestant males, which is mind-blowing. It's so much more a creation of these marginalized uh, outcast uh, groups. It's an outcast art form. And yet it became one of the most influential art forms at the center of American culture. And maintaining that integrity all the time from the way I view it. it, it it's not like it's sold out or compromised. It was these artists from these groups created this art form and have, uh, in a way, sort of uh, strongly influenced both the social history of America and the, the cultural history of America. Yeah. Well, and... Something that really resonates, especially for all of those listening right now, um, they definitely need to listen to your opening episodes, like where you lay out the history um, of the marginalized groups who shape um, Broadway. But I do think there's a conundrum that something when I taught my literature in Broadway musical, um, there was a lot of balancing between I mean, I focused a lot on LGBTQ narratives and, but did go through the golden age um, slightly of Broadway, um, right? And for everyone out there, that's like the 1940s to 50s, the like big MGM musicals I always think of um, with Ann Miller tap dancing. Uh, so what's interesting is you're exactly right that there's so many, um, those outcasts are these groups who really don't have a seat at the table in other venues or areas of arts and culture in America, but yet the narratives are still pretty dominant of um, the privileged. Like they're still telling stories of the privileged. So like, it doesn't necessarily represent, um, like I've always just found it interesting that um, there's a tension like where they're still presenting narratives with actors who are modeling American attitudes of that culture and of the time, like especially the golden age of Broadway. I'm not certain that I entirely agree with you, but it, partly it's because I separate, separate the movie musicals out of this. I'm exclusively okay. talking about Broadway because Hollywood, although shares a lot of the same origins as Broadway and a lot of the same people, it also was initially created by marginalized people. It quickly, in a way, did sort of 
follow a different path of more mainstream path than Broadway ever did. Now, a lot of Broadway musicals then would go to Hollywood, but even then they would often be sanitized and cleaned up and made more palatable for uh, a general audience. And the big difference is that Broadway only had to please people in New York, a New York audience, or people who came to New York to see it. Hollywood had to please everybody in every little town, which is why you ended up with a production code and censorship and all the stuff that happened, because they had to please the that the religious right to a certain extent is the way we might phrase it today, or at least the right-leaning religious people all across the country. And Broadway didn't give a fuck about them, didn't care about that, and didn't have to deal with that. They had they dealt with a an immigrant audience, a, a, a an urban audience, and uh, that make that makes a big difference. And sometimes people are often surprised when they see the original versions of a Broadway show, if they've only seen the movie. A good example is this, we produced a production of Carousel 10 years ago or so at the Fifth Avenue Theater. And I had audience members come up to me outraged that Billy Bigelow kills himself toward the end, at the end of the first act of that. How dare we change the show and how outraged Rodgers and Hammerstein would be that we had turned what was supposed to be an accidental death into a suicide. And it's like, no, you, they changed it for the movie. Roger and, Hammer, Roger and Hammerstein were not happy about it. This is what they wrote. This is what they wanted it to be. This is what this story is. But yes, we, things got, you know, sort of, uh, watered down along the way yeah no i'm glad you separate the mainstream of a hollywood musical i mean we can even go to la la land and how sanitized that is with not even having um african-american jazz artists really presented instead it's um through a white male perspective so there's still you know yeah. hollywood has its own um glaring discrepancies when they present narratives uh, centered on uh, musical theater, but or centered on just the Hollywood musical. And I think what's really fascinating is um, what you're looking at in Broadway is specifically, there's so much, I think of the 60s to 70s and how experimentally uh, liberating of sexuality I think of hair, of course, um, the best little whorehouse in Texas. I mean, there's some musicals that I think were actually even more Grease in its off-Broadway to Broadway version compared to the movie was much more raucous and raunchy. And um, in a way, I think- Abs Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think we've kind of, I don't want to say we've lost the raunchiness, but I don't see as daring narratives as there were in the 60s. And right, I guess that's because of the sexual revolution. But it actually goes way back before the 60s. Broadway was always the place. And again, my students are often surprised at this. You look at the Ziegfeld Follies, it's filled with naked people. It is uh, It is talking about all these shows are often very uh, sexually provocative in many, many ways and socially provocative. But uh, because Broadway was seen as the adult place, the movies, because they were censored, was the family place. 
somehow again, I think it's because Disney entering the the Broadway uh, sphere and also then the movie versions of of Broadway musicals cleaning them up. People got the idea that Broadway was supposed to be for a family audience, and it was never for a family audience in throughout almost any of its history. It was always a place where you expected to see racy, raunchy, not always raunchy, but always racy for the most part. And even musicals like uh, from the from the Golden Age, like Pajama Game, and even uh, South Pacific, often had elements in them that were pushing the boundaries of the time, or at least on the edge of that, uh, that did not make it into the movie versions of them. That were, they, they were, and especially one of the things I try to focus on is, and the big difference between the Broadway narratives and the Hollywood and later television narratives is working women are at the center of almost every Broadway musical. Single working women are what the stories are about which is the complete opposite of what most Hollywood narratives were about. They were always about the men. Broadway musicals are almost almost exclusively about the women. And even when they appear to be like about the men, like uh, Fiddler on the Roof is a great example, mm-hmm. it's actually about those daughters who break the patriarchy. Exactly. That's the story of Fiddler on the Roof is three women single-handedly break down the patriarchy of their community and revolutionize it. Yeah. And I mean, I guess um, like right now, Camelot just opened and I would say Guinevere is a very prominent figure. I mean, I remember Guinevere's songs more than I do. Yeah. Again, I don't know. Um, Camelot isn't one I listen to a lot. Um, I'm not sure if I'll be seeing it. Not because I don't love Philippa Sue, who I do. Mm-hmm. I saw her in Into the Woods in the summer and she was wonderful. But yeah, you know, sometimes we can get into later. We'll end <laughs> with some of our favorites and misses. And and sure. it's not about the performers and actors. It's about maybe just the narrative not speaking to us. Um, but yeah, I think that it's so fascinating um where you're going with just that interest that thirst for i know you have a whole s- discussion about transgressive women and i'm even thinking when i saw funny girl recently with leah michelle that's all about transgressing her Absolutely. own expected um like jewish values as a woman like what she should be doing as a career but she wants to be on the stage um and that's her musical i mean that really yeah. is, right? Dream Girls, even with Effie White and Dina's tension, that's the heart of it. I mean, I'm sure there's some musical, I know there's one where like, I guess everyone's talking about Jamie does have more of a, you know, it has a queer male center. Um, but yeah, like even when you brought up Gypsy, um, you were so interested in the beginning, but it all is about her rise as a burlesque dancer. Adelaide is a burlesque dancer. I mean, absolutely. Th- yeah. And these are 50s, 1950s musicals. Um, so I guess my whole question is just why, like, why do you think that there's, um, 
this view, you kind of brought it up with Disney, but why do you think there's this view that um, Broadway should be children focused or even that it's a family affair? Like, do you think there is a place for families, but there's also a need for the other narratives? Absolutely. I think that on occasion, and even throughout the history, on occasion, Broadway was a family was appealing to a family audience. And in fact, it all part of it depends on what you how you define that. I think children were taken to Broadway shows throughout their history and they loved them, just like I loved Gypsy when I was, you know, five years old. And people weren't so uptight about mm-hmm. what the content was. At least people in New York weren't. People who, because for most of Broadway's history, the main audience consisted of the New York region, were the people who went to see Broadway shows and were, I'm sure, more liberal than most of the country and were able and felt, you know, that they could take their kids to see a show. And if there was something in that show, they would explain it or they would, it would go over their heads or whatever would happen. It wasn't a big, it wasn't a big deal. Uh, I think as American culture has changed, somehow it got this idea that this is our, a musical so supposed to be a safe place where we won't be exposed to anything that we don't want to see and don't want to know. And certainly Disney has made a brand of that. And every time they've sort of come outside that brand, they get into trouble as they try to introduce the world into what they're doing. So I think it's the... Uh, conservative values have gotten more out in the open and and asserted themselves to be more vocal about what they want and what they see. But again, that's not really new either. That goes back to the um, that's why the the Hollywood uh, imposed the the production code because conservative voices were out there threatening to have Congress mandate uh, censorship for the movies. Hi, this is Andrew, and I'm interrupting what I know is an enthralling interview because I want you all to know that we are sponsored by Broadview Press. And if you don't know, Broadview Press is an independent academic publisher who publishes books covering Topics like English studies, writing, philosophy, history, gender studies. And every season on the podcast, I interview one of the Broadview Press authors. So for the fall, we had Ann Stevens on to talk about literary theory and criticism. She played a Wizard of Oz literary game with us. She talked about why Bridgerton actually involves literary theory. So does Fifty Shades of Grey. Who knew? Um, And also, We just had on Jeffrey Weinstock, who wrote the first ever pop culture analysis book. So, you know, I am all things a lover of pop culture, especially my Hollywood topics, Real Housewives. The list goes on and on. And he also wrote the book called The Mad Scientist's Guide to Composition, where he's writing a book teaching students about how to write rhetorical strategies, but it's all 
around this metaphor of being in the mad scientist laboratory, because as you'll learn when you hear our episode with Jeffrey, he is a gothic and horror fanatic. And I mean that in all the best ways possible. So you don't want to miss Broadview Press's exclusive discount because you're listening to the podcast. All of you get an automatic 20% off. Use the code Ivory Tower for 20% off site-wide on all of their books. So our in our show notes, we have a link to Broadview Press. Make sure you click the link, put in Ivory Tower, and you're going to get 20% off your order. So enjoy your reading, everyone. And take out, and if you watch, I love watching pre-code movies. I don't know if you are into those at all, but there's this little blip of time in the early 1930s after the talkies come in and the before the production code happens. And there's nudity and there's sexual situations and there's really intense, uh, you know, real life drama that all got wiped away. And that is more like what Broadway was like. That actually, the pre-code really reflects what a Broadway play or a Broadway musical would have been like in terms of content. Yeah, in a At way, that same period. Like the, it's the same period as what's presented in the Weimar Republic in Cabaret with how yeah. sexually scandalous this cabaret is. Um, but then- Right in Cabaret, I think it does present the picture of the rise of a dictator and then what happens with censoring. And yeah, I mean, I don't want everyone out there to think um, I'm trying to make an analogous situation, but I I do get concerned that there's been... Um, a lot of focus on, which I like revivals, but unfortunately it seems like the focus now is either movie adaptations, revivals on Broadway, and maybe you get an original piece like a Hades town or right now it's um shucked, which I still am trying to find out more about. <laughs> I, I don't, they're not really giving a lot of information about this. And apparently yeah, that's only... the marketing strategy. And I'm not sure if that's a good choice. I've but, only seen the poster for it. I have no idea what it's about or what it's going to be. Yeah, a corn competition. That's what I've <laughs> kind of gathered. But, um, you know, well, everyone out there, if you're involved with Shucks, I'm sure it's wonderful. Send us tickets and I'll, we'll see it. Um, but I like, though, when you break down, David, these really important themes of understanding the musical community. I've already mentioned transgressive women, but I kind of want to touch upon the equality, social justice, and inclusion, because um, something that I have noticed with especially um, teen musicals, um, and I'll use that loosely, but because Carrie is a teen musical in a way, but mm -hmm. it's operatic in other parts, but Footloose, definitely, Grease, um, Mean Girls now. I mean, we have now have a lot of teen musicals. Um, but they, for the most part, except Grease, um, the others that I mentioned were pretty inclusive of race and um, the cast having like different sexuality elements brought in. Um, 
But do you think that Broadway now has become more racially integrated in their cast or is there still I mean, I know that was a whole discussion recently <laughs> with Hamilton yeah. and blind I casting. Mean, yeah. It certainly has. And it was ahead of the it was ahead of the curve. It was way ahead of uh, you know, what was the Hollywood Oscar so white or whatever that uh mm -hmm. movement was. Broadway was way ahead of that. Has it always been what we would ideally want it to be? No, it has ebbed and flowed. But it's there was a period in the 1920s uh, when there were more Black people on Broadway than there are today. For 10 years, it was. And then the Depression came in, and that was bad news for Broadway and even worse news for Black musicals for for black not so much for the talent the they 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 go we go into a period there where black artists start to be included in all kinds of work but black writers and directors and choreographers are 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 left behind and then it's not again until we get to the 1970s really late 60s 1970s that there's this new explosion of black talent on Broadway in all facets, actors, singers, dancers, writers, directors, choreographers. And there's this a sort of second golden age of that that happens there. But then we get to the Reagan era and that all fades away. Part of it is because it's the same thing that happens with the with the LGBT talent that's happening with there's an explosion at the same time of all kinds of diversity, including, uh, you know, gay artists, uh, mm -hmm. gay and AIDS happens and AIDS devastates Broadway and sends everything, you know, and a lot of those artists were the ones who were championing you of all kinds of diversity as well. If you I show my students pictures from this whole series of shows, all the shows in the 1970s, basically. And I say, what do you notice? They say, well, there's people of color in all of these. I say, yeah, that's exactly right. That's how Broadway was during the 70s. Mm -hmm. But then you Pippin. get to the eight Pippin. Yeah, exactly. You, you, well, you we have to mention the Wiz. The Wiz, I think, really, well, well, the, really brought the Renaissance in the seventies. Even besides those specifically black shows, which absolutely were really important. But if you look at Jesus Christ Superstar and Pippin and Godspell and mm -hmm. uh, several more that are escaping me at the moment, they all are very multicultural in their casting and in their in their makeup. Uh, but that. AIDS actually puts an end to a lot of that as well, because it makes room for this British invasion to happen. And we end up with the big Brit paparettas, which not I'm not uh, accusing them of anything, but they they really whitewash Broadway again to a great extent. Yeah, you're calling out Andrew Lloyd Webber. It's OK. <laughs> I mean, but, but it's true. I mean, the Phantom, I saw the first black Christine Daae, and that was last year. Yeah, on Broadway. I mean, Andrew Lloyd Webber has been behind when it comes to racial integration. I don't think that's controversial. Except, I will say when Diane Carroll played in Sunset Boulevard as Norma, but that was in Canada. I think it was in right. Canada. Yeah, it was. Um, but yeah. it also those shows were of their era, which is the Reagan era, and all kinds of 
the we went backwards in terms mm -hmm. of uh of progression of, of of equal rights equal rights went backwards in that period in across america in every aspect mm -hmm. and uh, including on broadway broadway was probably still doing it you know better than other places but then it didn't start to recover until we get to the 2000s basically mm -hmm. for that change and i think it has changed to a drastic extent is it enough of course not it's yeah. you know there it, it, it's but is it a lot yes it is a there there is a lot of opportunity what we're where we're still way behind is in on the creative side of it, act of uh, writers, directors, choreographers, there that that balance has not shifted yet. That's yeah, still like, a predominantly white uh, workforce. Yeah, it's like what Jesse Green when he talks about and wrote about Mary Rogers, how few still there are female composers on Broadway. Yeah. Um, but that's and, changed dramatically too. I mean, when you think mm -hmm. about how, I, there was either last year or the year before, uh, almost all the shows were written by women. You had Hadestown, you had uh, Fun Home, you had, uh, there was a, I, I'm going to mix them up badly, but there's a period in there where there is a tremendous amount of, oh, it was uh, uh, Mean Girls is part of that. There's there's women, and some of them are sort of hidden women that people aren't focusing on, but they're right there creating the shows and writing. Yeah. And that's one of the one, things I tried to celebrate too in all my work is there were women at the center of the Broadway musical, not as many as men, but in a key important positions and leadership from the beginning to today, consistently yeah. throughout. We and just don't hear about them. Oh, choreographers Stroman. in a major way. I mean, going um, back, yeah, uh, you can go back to the beginnings of of Broadway and there's uh, incredible women like Gertrude Hoffman is a name that nobody will know, but I actually have an episode coming up because somebody just wrote a book about her. And she is, she invented a lot of what we think of as Broadway choreography. There'd be no Rockettes without Gertrude Hoffman. Yeah, she well, one a, of my she, favorites, sorry, is- No, go ahead. Well, I can't wait to listen to that, but also um, Twyla Tharp with Moving Out. I think- for me, one of the best productions I've seen of a dance musical was Moving Out. Like that was a phenomenal show. It was great. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm excited to see Dancing. That's the one I do want to see because I'm such a Bob Fosse. I mean, now I'm mentioning a male choreographer, but <laughs> um, but there's many female choreographers who are inspired. Agnes Mill, of Anne course, Reiking. the most famous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those who carried the torch uh, from Bob Fosse, uh, who are women, and. But like, let's take Pippin because you had such a great discussion with, can you remind me the author of the book about the Pippin backstory? Uh, yes, uh, Elise Gardner. Okay. Yeah, that was an incredible episode that you had. I hope I, hope and, I have that right. I'm pretty sure that's right. Okay. Well, <laughs> well if not, you know, forgive him. Uh, forgive him, Elise. Um, but like Pippin was such an interesting, I saw the revival and- it was so remarkable for not only the racial integration with Patina Miller, um, like taking over the leading player role, um, but also, um, it's going to blank. Is it Diane Paulus? Yeah, Diane Paulus. Yeah, as the director. Yeah. Um, and that whole 
circus acrobatic type element. I love Charlotte Dembois. I actually message her on Instagram. She's wonderful. Shout out to her. Um, and a musical like that, though, it was interesting because children, I did start to see them, especially in the last 10 years. It's like you've said, I think because of the Disneyfication, there's more tourists with children who don't do the research of knowing what they're seeing, which I always say, like, just do a quick synopsis. But children in Chicago, I've seen. Uh, and then yeah. I don't think that it's not appropriate because I saw Pippin when I was little. I saw, um, I don't know, I saw Hairspray when I was um, in sixth grade. I mean, I wouldn't say Hairspray is that um, sensual, but there's all... A lot of those musicals, like you said, they have sensuality, but it kind of goes over your head in a certain way. Well, and also a lot of people have seen them done in high schools where they cleaned all that stuff up. So their mm -hmm. exposure to Pippin was the, you know, high school production that they were in or saw. And so they're also maybe surprised. I saw the original production of Pippin. It's one of my first trips to New York where all of those things were there. And even more, I mean, that was really a... a incredibly, I don't want to say raunchy, but it was a very sexually in-your-face show. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the other things that uh, my students comment on when they look at these pictures of shows from that period. is like, they say, nobody's wearing any clothes. And I say, yeah, that was the 60s. That was the 70s. Yeah. We didn't wear clothes. We didn't wear clothes. It was part of the sexual uh, liberation movement. It was part of a whole thing of like, you suddenly exposing your body was a political act to a great extent and an artistic one. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. I have a book actually about the sixties to seventies, like sexual liberate liberation, nudity type musicals. There was one where they were, they did the full Monty. I'm trying to remember the name. Well, there were a couple, there was the, there was Oh Calcutta, which was the famous oh, one on it. Broadway. <laughs> LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? Have you been moved by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? If so, the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie, or what have you. In addition to the articles published in the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog, as well as personal essays on its popular Here's My Story section. This allows people like you to share their own experiences with our readers. To learn more about submitting either to the print or the online edition of the GNLR, visit georeview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W dot O-R-G. And scroll down to the bottom of the page to find a link to their writer's guidelines. If you have questions, email me at stephen.hemrick at georeview.org. The GNLR can't wait to see what you have to say. And then there was a one that ran off Broadway for years called Let My People Come which was also very much in the same vein. It was, it was a sexual liberation musical review, basically, where most of the cast was naked through most of the show. 
And what I'll never forget, because I actually saw that show too, when I went to New York, I was, you know, a high school student, maybe, or a little more. And they, the cast would, this was in a tiny off-Broadway theater. And as you left, the cast would line up and you'd have to go down the down between all of them naked and shake their hands and say, Hi, nice show and all that kind of stuff. So they were, it was a big political statement they were making. Oh my goodness. Like there's nothing wrong that with That is this. funny. There's nothing wrong with being naked was the message of that show. Yeah. And now we have um, like the only kind of equivalent is naked boys singing which is basically <laughs> a bachelorette and gay fantasy type musical as an experience um but i you know want to go back to hairspray because it really like from your analysis um in your beginning episodes of it um and knowing now that you were at the Fifth Avenue Theater when it actually, so it was in its beginning stage. Like this was the first ever um, version of the we script. We did the world premiere the of Hairspray. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So how much did it actually change from the Fifth oh. Avenue to Broadway? Uh, of the, as you said before, 19 new musicals that I was involved with at the Fifth Avenue uh, that we produced there and nine of them went to Broadway. Wow. Which is an incredible oh, track record. Hairspray unusually probably changed the least because it was the show out of the box from the first time you read the script to the first time you heard the demo. I remember being sent the demo tape and the script. It was ready to go. It's just for whatever reason, those Part of it has to do with the producer who was Margot Lyon, was very smart and put together an incredible team and really cultivated them and managed them. And most of them had never done a Broadway musical before at that point, and, but put them with together with, you know, very talented uh, people like Jack O'Brien, who was the director, and Jerry Mitchell, who was the choreographer. Uh, it was a very smartly put together team, and they were just able to to do it well the first time out which is just which is not typical and it's not a model you can't make that happen it just happened to be that way but there were still some big disagreements uh when because we we the very i will never forget the first time it was ever in front of an audience which was at the the first performance at the fifth avenue theater it had never been performed anywhere before and there was a lot of worry among the creative among the producing team especially Margot, uh and conflict between the with the writers about the song i know where i've been mm. which is the big uh uh dramatic mind. number that comes that motormouth sings toward the end of the of the show and now we know it's a classic and now we know it ties the whole show together and now we know you couldn't imagine hairspray without it but at that time, it what that wasn't at all clear, and there was some concern that it was going to be too serious for what was a very wacky, light musical comedy in many ways, even though it has serious themes at the heart of it, uh, very serious themes, and it tackles all of them so brilliantly. But that was not clear that that would that the audience would be 
would receive that well. It was worried that it was going to feel preachy, that it was going to feel like a sledgehammer about here's what this show's about. And, you know, we're going to teach you a moral now. It just wasn't at all clear. And there was back and forth between uh, Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman, who were the songwriters, and Margot Lyon and the other producers about whether it could be in or not be in. And they had it in one workshop and they took it out and they put it back in. And finally, they made an agreement that they would at least perform it at uh, at one preview, at the first preview, and then everybody would assess it. And I'll never... And I love this story because Margot told this story about herself afterwards, knowing what we know now about Hairspray. But at the time, she was adamant that that song was just not going to work and it was going to kill the show. So, or at least not, kills the show is too strong, mm -hmm. but it was going to disrupt this momentum that she knew the show was going to have. Yeah, slow down the pace of the show. Yeah, especially at the 11 o'clock spot, which is what it was, to then not, you wouldn't recover from that to get to the thing. So I'm sitting next to her at the very first preview, and uh, we've discussed this a lot by this point, but so the curtain goes up, first number, Good Morning Baltimore, as we know it, almost, it, had, it has a, pre, a little opening to it now that it didn't have that, it just sort of started right with a bump, 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 and she's in the bed, and the audience laughs there's this big laugh right at the top of the show which was great and at the end of that number the audience went crazy now have to remember this is an audience coming to see a show they know nothing about and hairspray is not a very famous movie at that point it's sort of a cult movie mm -hmm. nobody in the show has ever really has a strong broadway presence even harvey was not as big a star then as he came became from hairspray so there's really no expectation except we're going to see something called hairspray and if they knew what it was and they knew who john waters was that was more likely to be a negative than a positive for many people because they when you think about john waters you think about you know pink flamingos and things like that so anyway the audience goes crazy for it and then every number in the show the audience goes crazy for it, just screams and then finally we get to, and the first act has gone brilliantly. And then the second act has gone really well. And we get to that number and Margaret, and I just sort of look at each other and she starts to, she, uh, Mary Bond Davis, who was the original Motormouth, who was fabulous, launches into it and it starts to go. And you know how it builds. It has that incredible build. And at the end of the number, this is the way I may have, you know, embellish this in my mind but this is how i remember it there was this moment of like silence and i thought oh the numbers they're right the numbers dying i thought it was great but the numbers died. and then the audience burst into the biggest ovation of the night so far just went crazy and Margot turned to me and said now we'll never get this number out of the show <laughs> but i love that kind of process which is you really need to listen to the audience. Like there's, that's what theater makes, it makes it so special is because the audience is part of the recipe. Like you need to respond and it's a call to action in a way from just the actors own energy and how they're receiving their own uh, performance. So no, thanks for, Laying that out, David. Oh, and I did want to know I, was, oh no, was, I was just um, saying, you're absolutely yeah. right. Nobody, you don't know until the audience is there. 
You yeah. actually do not know whether it's going to work because it's just as likely that something, and we've seen this in many shows, something you think is going to kill them. It's just the best thing in the show. And you put it in front of an audience and it just doesn't land. They don't, they're not, they're not interested in that and it has to go away. So it, it's impossible to finish a show without the participation of an audience, I always say. Yeah, yeah. And I was just curious, was John Waters really present in the he was around, musical adaptation? Yeah, he was around a lot. He spent a lot of time in my office, actually. So I hung out with John quite a bit. Uh, and he was fun. He loved that the show was being done. And he loved sort of this. He was quite amazed to see something he had written started. And this was at the beginning of this and even later, even more so, to take on this you know, worldwide, international uh, uh, audience that, you know, would, no one would have predicted a John Waters, anything John Waters wrote would have that wide appeal. Yeah. So he well, was, he loved it. I absolutely loved Crybaby when I saw that musical. And I'm so sad that Crybaby didn't, it didn't capture its, um, audience and you know i think crybaby could have there's always a chance it can be every musical can be redone in a different you know find Absolutely, that audience yeah. um but you know as we're nearing the end which hopefully you know i'll have you know we'll be in touch david you'll be back on or i'll you know make Anytime. an appearance somehow i know we'll continue our discussion um but I'm just curious, which, um, what musical do you feel um, best speaks to, I don't want to say the themes you lay out, because that sounds so didactic, talking about, you know, hitting someone over the head with a moral, but which, which musical do you think you've always returned to for its material? Because there's always a layer that you're learning from it. Like there's something in it that just um, speaks to that magic of Broadway and the outcasts type narrative. I mean, there are several that combine all of the, th the themes, the three main themes. Hairspray is certainly one of those that combines all of those themes. And what with a musical like Hairspray, I always think of the Broadway musical secret, you know, hidden secret is that it's subversive. You don't what you never walk out thinking about the themes directly or feeling or if you do, you don't feel like you've been hit over the head with them or that they're trying to teach you a moral or that has any of the negative aspects of that. They have just made these themes so dramatic and so important that you absorb them. Hey, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners and true crime friends. You've heard me gush over this incredible woman and her beautiful products. I'm talking about Mandy Made It. Mandy makes customized and original crochet and cre-cut goods. They are the perfect, unique, one-of-a-kind gift for literally anyone in your life. And she makes incredible home decor. I still have my pumpkins that I put out every fall. I just love them. Check her out on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E -E, Made It or search Mandy Made It on Facebook. 
to order, just slide into her DMs. And if you mention the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you will receive a free personalized gift with your first order. So go on Instagram and look up at Mandy Made It. And Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. Again, her handle is at Mandy Made It. Mandy spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. And order today. And I think that has been the that musicals have actually changed the world. That's the final subtitle of my of my podcast is and how and how they changed the world in the process. And I think musicals have had an effect. Of course, you can't document it, but you know, I would ask, well, where would we be if we hadn't spent all this? If if millions of people hadn't absorbed these messages over and over and over again. So that's one Fiddler on the Roof is another one that just is so rich. And I'm always amazed when I show it to my students that they, most of whom have never seen it before, don't know what it is. And they walk away so engaged by the immediacy of the story and how pertinent it is to our lives today. And of course, that's a story that's set in a very specific antiquated world in a way. It's set in a shtetl in, you know, at the turn of the century in this very closed society. But it shows why these musicals can be so, because that's one that's the most popular musical in Japan. Mm-hmm. Who feel like I, when they first did the, the show over there in Japan in a Japanese production, a Japanese language, uh, Joe Stein, the book writer, went over there to see it. And he got there and the producer picked him up and said, you know, I've been wondering how do how do Americans I don't understand how Americans uh, relate to the show. It's so Japanese. And they saw it as being their story. It's universal. Yeah. It's so universal. It's specific and universal. It's the specifics that make it universal. But the themes that are behind it, because the themes, those themes of tradition and women's liberation and which is all of them are very pertinent to to the to the Japanese uh, world at that time and even today, those are that tension between how do we maintain these traditions and how do women especially assert themselves in the world and liberate themselves and what do they how do we find that balance between allowing that to happen and not losing our our culture in the process so that's another big one um trying to think if there's a well those are the first two that um, jump off yeah yeah Yeah, and like what what i love is what you described about the subversiveness like i think why for me chicago the musical is just so fascinating I love um, Kander and Ed musicals, but Cabaret, um, but also Bob Fosse directed, choreographed musicals, Pippin, where you're really, um, with Chicago, you're falling for these murderesses. And it's all about the critique of celebrity culture of, um, you know, that it's a publicity campaign and that it's all done through their, triple threat performances, I think is just so under, like there's always this underbelly tension, but you are just dazzled literally by the razzle dazzle of the court drama. 
and, and bamboozled yeah. along the way by falling in love with these murderers. Yeah. Who and, will can get it just and you're right, it's about celebrity culture. If you're a celebrity, you can get away with anything, which mm-hmm. we have seen played out. It's you know, that we've we've gone beyond satire with that because we've seen that play out in our presidency, among other places, where you just can be famous enough to do I mean it the message of Chicago and you know uh, Donald Trump's statement that he could shoot somebody and uh, still get elected was is is the same story. Yeah, not being held accountable because of who you are in the society. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but, um, and they're the genius of Chicago and Candor and Eb and Fossey and Fossey wrote the book for Chicago is that they're questioning that it came out of Watergate. It came out of a time in the country where people were really questioning. And in any, many ways, Chicago has the culture has caught up with the culture in a way, or the culture has caught up with Chicago. It's become more clear what the shows are more pertinent in a way, I guess, is the way to say it. Yeah. And yet you could just be dazzled by the entertainment value of it. But underneath but, is this message of, yeah, something's not always right in our culture. Well, and I love. I actually love the um, changing up of Roxy that like it is known women who are trying to correct their own actual like I saw Pam Anderson as Roxy and it made so much sense to me that so many who play Roxy um, who could be called stunt casting are actually correcting their own media narrative. So like it adds a layer that makes sense in this spectacle of consumption of a public culture so yeah i am curious though why like it's interesting though velma doesn't get stunt casted but i'm assuming maybe that's because of the dance but i think roxy it's too hard to do a lot but velma's tough but somehow they have figured out a way to sort of make roxy's part less taxing i'm no no most of these women could not do what gwen verdon did or what Anne ranking did when they played Mm -hmm. roxy but they have watered that down enough that they can just come in and give a personal appearance and and be and very effectively make that work for them without having to do nearly as much dancing as Roxy did originally. But in the original, Gwen Verdon was, you know, 56 years old, I think. So they had very carefully crafted that show for her to do it and be fantastic, but only just do as much as she could do eight times a week and be brilliant. So I think that's helped it. Whereas Cheetah Rivera was, you know, I don't know, at least 10 years younger, more than that, I think. Uh, and, and kicking her legs over night. chairs. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. Um, well, yeah, we'll see. I mean, I have but to say- I, I, I love, love that idea, that intersectional idea of the story, what's the woman that the, the stars that are going into the show is somehow telling a story that's related to the show in its own way is really fascinating. Yeah, because of their own public spectacle with um, yeah. these headlines of um, just salacious news about them in entertainment magazines, which makes sense. It does tie in. Um, yeah. But again, shout out to Charlotte Dembois, who has been Roxy for a while. I will say, like, when a um, 
Broadway dancer and singer and actress takes on Roxy, they then add back. It seems like they add their layer of dancing into it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I'm sure Charlotte Dembois does the full show every night. They just, yeah. it's only for the, they they cater it to the stars that go into it. Yeah, and I saw Bianca Maraquin, who was incredible. I just love, I love Chicago. Uh, that and Dreamgirls. I feel like I need a Dreamgirls revival now. Like, <laughs> okay. I love but, that show. Totally yes. love it. Well, and I will end with this, David, which is, not to, it's not negative, but what's a musical that, it doesn't have to be the current season, but what's a musical that you just aren't drawn to? There's just something about it that it's not speaking to you. You know, there, there are always going to be those for everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, for some reason for me, and I am most focused on, I like a, a, a strong narrative even, or at least I'll boil that down. I like dramatic tension that really is played out well, because it can be a, I mean, one of my all-time favorite shows is Company, which in theory doesn't have a story, but it has a lot of dramatic tension. And it has, it has the, even in a concept musical, you can still have strong narrative elements. And that's what I look for. And I'll be honest, I didn't find that in Town. I know people love that show, but I just was left completely. I, th I thought the first 10 minutes of it were fantastic. And I thought, oh, I'm going to love this. And then about a half an hour into it, I thought, what's the story? Where's the story? What's it going to be about? And it never, I never found that. I never found the story of Town to get interested in. And I never found characters to really, to pull me in. Yeah. I'm very happy that many other people are loving it. And yeah, I think there's, it yeah. speaks to different people. Like for me, exactly. here's one musical where I was going to walk out on Broadway. And that's the ever the only time I ever felt like that. I didn't just because I don't, I find that I'm offending the actors, but yeah. finding Neverland, I'm sorry. I, mm, mm -mm. it know, was I not actually... doing it for me. I missed that one. So I can't, I can't weigh in on that one, but for yeah. some, it's one of the very few shows in the last, I don't know, 40 years that I did not get to see, but for some reason I missed it. Yeah. Well, they uh, went in favor of spectacle on stage instead of narrative. And for me, when you're just shooting off fireworks, it doesn't yeah. do it for me. Um, <laughs> but also I'll say Andrew Lloyd Webber, I love the Phantom of the Opera, but it, when I keep seeing it again, like when I revisit it, um, it's hard for me to see more nuance. But again, I like Phantom. I will say, Joseph, I enjoy some of the music, but yeah, Andrew Lloyd Webber, my favorite of his is Sunset Boulevard. Like I think Norma Desmond just shines. It's It's about the leading lady like yeah for him my favorite is evita i think okay. evita, yes i evita never too. tire of evita i'm always fascinated by it and that uh i think it's the the most successful uh his i, I like his tim rice shows better than i do his later shows part of the only thing i'm not so crazy about um uh sunset boulevard is i just don't think the lyrics are very good I think that Andrew Lee Weber got to a point where he, 
I, who knows? I don't want to psychoanalyze him, but I think he didn't well, always work with the best people in the end. No. But he does a good, I've noticed he cares a lot about in those musicals, the crossover into the pop realm. So like Dame Shirley Bassey has an incredible album about Andrew Lloyd Webber. Like, yeah, it was always so. for him to cross over, which is an interesting I'm excited model. to see Bad Cinderella, which is his new show. And especially because David Zippel is doing the lyrics and David Zippel is a fantastic lyricist. Mm. So that's a great combination, hopefully. Yeah, you can let me know, David. <laughs> let me know. By the time this comes out, probably you've seen it. So please let me know. Um, I'm not seeing it, but that's just my own. Uh I'm going to try to see the new Sweeney Todd. Uh, so, I'm the yeah. completist. I I have to see them all. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's good. Someone has to do it. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, thank you, David. This was wonderful. And thank you. My pleasure. Yeah. I feel like we hit all the different themes. So many musicals were talked about. Maybe there'll be a revival of applause eventually, but I think it's kind I of- I would love that. I, I would love it. And I know everyone says, but it's so stuck in the 70s pop. But so make hey, it why set can't we in have the that? 70s. Yeah. Why exactly? I, why it can does be it have to be updated? It doesn't have to be. It can be in the 70s. Not That's everything has of... to be 2023. Exactly. Okay. No, well, thanks. I'm, I'm a big yeah. fan of that. I'll be with you when we do the revival. Okay. Yeah. Let's do the revival. Let's find <laughs> Meryl Streep. I keep saying, bring Meryl Streep back. Um, I, I'm sure it. I mean, Meryl does like to be on the stage, but I don't think she wants to do a long run. No, no. Excuse me. Yeah, but someone will. Yeah, exactly. It will, the path will be paved. Um, <laughs> thank you, David. Thanks to the audience. And oh, make sure you listen to Broadway Nation with David Armstrong. Uh, yeah, and I can't wait to be in touch with you again. Thank you. Likewise. Okay. Bye, David. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Andrew Rimby, the executive director. I want you all to follow us on social media because there's so many video clips that we share and so many photos about these episodes. Follow us on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Follow us on Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room. Follow our Facebook page, the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Join our Patreon, patreon.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. For $5 a month, you get ad-free episodes, our video interviews, the True Crime and Academia bonus episodes, and all Ivory Tower Boiler Room bonus episodes. Thanks for buying a coffee for me. And thanks to an amazing team. Thanks, Mary. She's our chief contributor. And thanks to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room spring interns. Andrea, Caitlin, Sarah, Sheila, and Rosie. See you all again in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room.